Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. All right, my friends. As I said, Matthew 19, we left off in verse 13. So if uh, you would flip over to that page, so that's where we're going to begin. Let me just give you a quick background of where we are in Matthew 19, 13. Sometime around Matthew chapter 18, Jesus and his disciples leave the Galilee region. The Galilee region is the northern part of Israel. That's where Jesus spent most of his time. It's where his home was, both the one that he was sort of raised in and the one he lived in as an adult. He did a lot of his ministry up there. But now Jesus is making his way down. This little guy, God bless you, brother. This little fella. So now he's making his way down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about halfway down. If you think of Israel like a rectangle, it's kind of in the middle of the rectangle. And so they're making their way down there. It's probably, depending on where Jesus was at the time he departed, about 100 miles, 75 miles, something like that. And he's making his way, as we learned, he's following the Jordan River. And the banks of the Jordan River were sort of like the main thoroughfare. And he's making his way down there somewhat leisurely. He's not running to get to Jerusalem. He'll get down there. Um, We are about one month before Jesus' crucifixion. And so he's making his way there for that purpose. And as he does so, when he makes his way out into the area of Judea, the wilderness area of Judea, people are coming up to him. They're stopping him. And so we saw that there were many that came to him and asked for healing. And Jesus began to heal many. We see that Jesus began to teach a lot of people while he was there. And then we saw last week that there were some religious leaders that came out and they tried to challenge Jesus. They tried to trip Jesus up. They painted a scenario for the Lord in which he could either agree with God and be sort of on the opposite side of the issue that was popular of the day, or he could agree with the popular view of the day and not agree with God. And they felt like they had him in this like catch-22, what are you going to do? You know, and Jesus handled it. We saw that perfectly, deftly, and so on. And now, in that context of all these people coming out to the Lord, and some are friendly, some are foe, and so on, we read this in verse 13. It says, Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray for them. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, No, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and they went away. So again, you have these large crowds, and it's not long until some folks begin to bring their babies. Uh, It says their children. The the word that is used there is particularly their infants, their babies. And so you you think of a politician, you know, and people give the politician the baby, and he kisses or she kisses the baby, and... I don't know what that's supposed to do or whatever, but, you know, wow, you got kissed by the President of the United States or something, and it's supposed to be a meaningful thing. I remember we were in Mexico back in probably 2003. A group of us went down there. I know Jay went on one of the trips with me there, not that particular trip, but a group of us went down to Mexico, and our job was going to be we were helping to build a stage for this large warehouse church. We were going to build this stage, the back wall and all this. And the culmination of it, meaning like you got to get this thing done because on the Friday night, we went in on like a Saturday or something, on that Friday night, this woman named Yuri was going to perform. I meant to ask one of the guys who grew up in Mexico, anybody know Yuri? You do? She's pretty good, huh? 
See, she's a superstar. Yuri was, somebody described it to us. We were there in the 2000s. They, Yuri was like Madonna was in the 1980s. Like everybody knew Madonna in America. And that's what Yuri, and we're like, oh, how about that? You know, don't know who you are, you know, kind of thing. And so she was going to be, she got saved. She's walking with the Lord. She kind of separated from the music industry for about 10 years. But now she was coming back in and she was using it for the advancement of the kingdom. And so Yuri was coming and the place was going to be packed. And so they took our little team. Now, we had a bunch of uh, youth kids and a bunch of people like me and ladies and all this stuff. We were going to be the security for Yuri. And it was kind of fun. I know. It's pretty cool. And so I'm just like, what do you want me to do? And I was like, come on. It's just a, what? And they're like, no, believe me. And so we're holding hands here so that nobody can come past us. we got a, a wall of people holding hands. And kids are trying to, like, sneak under us or whatever. And I'm like, no, little buddy, you can't do that, you know, being polite. And there's this lady next to me. Her name was Karen. She worked down there. Karen, I really think, I don't know if this is an appropriate word to call someone, but I think it really describes her. She was a tough broad. All right, Karen was. And so Karen says, she's like, she said, bam, hits the kid with her knee in the head. And I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be fun. You know what I mean? We're, we're going to have a little good time. And so we're like, we're kicking kids and pushing them back or whatever. And I'm thinking, Karen said I could do so. And so anyhow, this mom, she's got a baby, little baby, maybe two months old at the most, and she hands it over top of our arms here, and she hands it over and basically lets go. And she's like, somebody better catch my baby because I'm letting go. And so obviously someone called the baby, bring her to Yuri for a kiss in Spanish. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, or whatever. And somebody knew what it meant. And so Yuri is over there kissing babies and passing them back over there. And somehow they thought that this would be some great blessing because you got kissed by Yuri. Well, that's kind of the scenario that's going on here. Kiss my baby, kiss my baby, bless my baby, pray over my baby. And people are bringing all of these here. Now notice the disciples, their response was much like me and Karen the broad is, would you just get out of here? You know what I mean? So the disciples, they respond and they rebuke the people. Now it doesn't tell us what they say, but we can figure out what they said. They're saying things like, hey, 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 no time for babies. Jesus is very important. If you have somebody important you want to bring to meet Jesus, that'll be fine. But he doesn't have time for little babies here. You got to get them out of here. Important people only. Now, Jesus responds, and he rebukes the disciples. So Jesus doesn't rebuke the parents that are bringing these babies. He rebukes the disciples, and he says, no, no, let the little children come to me, verse 14. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then he put his hands on the babies and he prayed for them. The disciples assumed that Jesus wouldn't want to be bothered by a bunch of kids, but the exact opposite is what happens. And so he says, no, no, I'm happy to have the kids brought to me. I find it interesting. Here we read, it's basically, it says they brought the the children to them. We, We assume it's mom and dad brought them. But in the book of Luke, Luke uses a word when he says they brought the children. Luke 18, 15 says they were bringing even the infants. That word they there is in the masculine form. So it means that the men were bringing the infants so that Jesus could bless them. And the reason why that catches my attention is because one of the things I've noticed Oftentimes what happens in the Christian faith, maybe other religions as well, I don't know, but oftentimes what happens in the Christian faith is the wife, the mom, takes the lead and the husband just sort of goes along for the ride. But what we see here are men taking the lead spiritually and guiding their family and bringing their children to Jesus so we can bless them. And that's biblical. The scripture says that we as men 
or to be the spiritual leaders of our home. And for some of us, it's a confirmation, yes, I know that, and I'm doing my best with it. For some of us, that's sort of like an eye-opening, really, I didn't realize that, because for so long we have been deferring. And so I'd encourage you men, be the leader spiritually of your home and discover what that means. When I came to faith, the, the girl that I was dating, we ended up getting married, so it was very early on in our relationship and so on, but she had been in the Lord for five years, six years. I've been in the Lord for five minutes. I didn't know anything spiritually. And so it's hard for a guy who doesn't know anything spiritually to try to be the spiritual leader in the relationship, but you bring it to the Lord. You gather with other men that know the Lord. Our men's ministry is a great place for you to go so that you can learn what does it mean for me to spiritually lead in my home. And these guys are doing that. I'd encourage you to do that as well. Consider that, be um, prayerful about that. It says, so these men are bringing it. Them, I should say. Are you spiritually leading? The next thing I, I think is important about this, the kids. You know, kids are typically at the lowest strata of society. You know, we kind of look at them, see, he knows, he's raising a hand. Yes, I am. I'm right at the lowest level. You know, at the lowest level of society. Oftentimes, you've even heard the expression, kids are to be seen and not heard. You know, just sort of kind of float over there on the side. We know that you have to exist, but we're looking forward to the day when you become important and you're an adult or something. And here... Those that were supposedly at the lowest level of society, Jesus demonstrates and challenges the way we look at people that are at a lower level of society. Now, I'm not talking about kids. Maybe you you still continue to do that, be nice to kids and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is this. Even though we know we're not supposed to do this, I think there's a natural tendency on our parts to see ourselves as either better or worse than other people. To look at maybe other people and say, well, you know, I'm better than that guy. I have a better education. I have more money. I have a better relationship with my family, whatever it may be. And we might begin to compare ourselves with other people and thus treat people differently because we see them as inferior. If you do that, I would encourage you, stop doing that. You shouldn't do that. Um, But it's natural. Perhaps it comes out and you got to work on that or whatever. If that is the tendency of your heart, notice how Jesus um, works with people that are considered on the lowest level, the children. He loves them. He welcomes them. He has time for them. He invites them in. And you should be doing so as well. So just a quick lesson there um, from the example of Christ. Now let's go on to verse 16. It says, Now behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. He said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, but all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, well, if you would be perfect, if you'd be complete, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had very great possessions. So verse 16 in the Matthew 19 passage tells us that a man is coming to Jesus inquiring about eternal life. This is a great example, a great uh, example of why it's important to look at some of the other passages that parallel this. So we know that many times in the Gospels, a story that is told in one of the Gospels is probably going to be talked about in one of the others, if not two or three of the others. And here we have one of those situations. This story is also told in Mark chapter 10 and in Luke chapter 18. 
And if you read all three of those accounts and you sort of compare the things you learn in one with the things you learn in another, we discover some interesting things here. Number one, we know all three passages tell us that a man comes to Jesus. And so this guy comes to Jesus to ask a question about eternal life. And so Matthew 19, however, in verse 22, we read it, but maybe you missed it. He says that it was a young man that comes to Jesus. So we know that there's this young man coming to the Lord, inquiring of the Lord about eternal life. Mark chapter 10 tells us also that this man had great possessions. And so now we have a guy, he's a young man with great possessions, and Luke tells us that he was, Luke 18, 23, that he was extremely rich. So we have an extremely rich young man coming to the Lord and asking his spiritual question. This guy has a lot going for him. Rich, young man, and so on. Now we learn one more thing. Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, 18, it says that he was a ruler. So he's a rich, young ruler in a society. He has everything that many people wish that they could have for their lives. I'd love to have power, I'd love to have money. I'd love to have youth and vitality. I wish I had all of these things. Well, this guy has all of those things. And a lot of people, if they could pick their life, might pick this life. And yet, despite that he has all these things, he comes to Jesus demonstrating that there's still something that is missing in his life. And what's missing in his life is revealed to us in his question. He does not have the assurance of eternal life. And so he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, historically, this fellow has been written about in the first century and even beyond. So this isn't in the Bible, but historically, it's said of this particular guy that he was a well-known person in his society. It's said of him that the religious leaders knew who he was and were grateful for him in society. The idea being that he was a good guy, well-respected by the religious leaders. Tradition tells us that he was a very generous man, which gave of his extreme riches, often to the synagogue or whatever it may be, to keep the work of God going, that he was a generous man with the poor and so on. So relatively speaking, it's said of him that he was a very moral person. And so it's interesting that despite the fact that this is a good, upstanding citizen of society that is a moral person. This is not some rich kid that's running around carousing, and if he gets in trouble, mom or dad will take care of it. That's not who this kid is. This is a good, upstanding individual of society, and yet he comes to Jesus, and he says, look, something's missing in my life. Essentially, he comes to Jesus aware that his eternal destiny is not secure. Now, as I was writing through that, I I almost wrote down that his eternity was not secure, and I decided to, to kind of reword that to be a little bit more precise, because the reality is every single person that walks on this earth, every one of us, our eternities are secure. We are all eternal beings, and every one of us, when we die here on the earth, we will go and live on forever. The question becomes where? Will you spend an eternity with God in heaven or will you spend an eternity separated from him in hell? So all of our eternities are secure. We're all eternal beings. But his eternal destiny is what he's getting to. Will I inherit eternal life? Will I be in the presence of God? There's a cult, Jehovah's Witnesses, 
that you might be familiar with. It's a so-called Christian cult, which means it's similar to Christianity, used a lot of the same terms as Christianity, but it does not hold to the key doctrines of the faith, which are required to be a Christian. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach a doctrine that is called annihilationism. What annihilationism teaches is if you are not a believer, when you die, if you're a believer, you'll go to their heaven, whatever that might look like. But if you're not a believer, then you cease from existing. You no longer exist. So you don't spend an eternity outside of the presence of God. According to Jehovah's Witnesses, no one will be in hell. There is no such thing as hell. And those that do not believe just are extinguished, so to speak. Now, let me tell you, I wish that doctrine were true. Because as I try and share my faith with other people and influence other people to come to the place of receiving Christ into their lives, people reject that. And I know people that have gone into eternity having rejected that truth. It would do my heart really well to know, well, at least they're not suffering now. They just cease from existing. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches we are all eternal beings. And we will all go on, and either we will be in the presence of the eternal God or outside of his presence. And so this fellow is asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life with God? Now, notice he begins with an assumption that I think many people begin with even 2,000 years later. He begins with the assumption that eternal life with God is somehow connected with and related to the things that we do here on the earth. That is that it's, eternal life is a reward for the things we do here on the earth. And so he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In 2002, there were some miners out in western PA. And it was a group of them, uh, somewhere at 12, 15 guys or whatever, that were working in the mines. And unfortunately, the mine collapsed and they were trapped uh, down in the mine. Maybe you remember back to 2002. A book was written about their experience. They were all saved, so that's a good news, saved in the sense of rescued from the mine, and they all made their way out. And a book was written about their experience called 77 Hours That Tested Our Friendship and Faith. That's a long book title. Um, But anyhow, 77 hours, they were in this mine trapped. And as time was going on, and as the hours were passing, they tell the story that as the oxygen level was also uh, dissipating, It was becoming harder and harder to breathe, and time was going on, and they were realizing, this isn't good. They may not get here to us in time. We may not be rescued, and so on. As you can imagine, the thoughts of the miners very quickly turned toward eternal things. And one of the younger miners, relatively new in the mine, he was about 30, but he'd been working in the mine just for a few years, he turned to an older guy who had been working in the mines for 30 years. So he's 30, and this guy's been working there all of his lifetime, and so he, a- he turned to this guy and asked him for some wisdom, essentially, about eternal things. Maybe this old guy will know some things. And uh, he said to him he, that he was concerned about dying and not going to heaven. And he said to the man, well, why are you concerned about that? He said to the man, well, because, and this is what the younger miner said, because I know that the Bible says you've got to be baptized to go to heaven, and I haven't been baptized. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach that. But this guy believed it did. And so he had never been baptized and he was worried that he wasn't going to go to heaven when he died. Now the older fellow responded to him and said to him not to be alarmed because he said, all good people go to heaven. No matter what, all good people go to heaven. Now that's wrong too. So both of these guys had a misunderstanding of how to get into heaven. They both thought it had to do with something you do. 
be a good person, do good deeds, get baptized, whatever it may be. And unfortunately, just like this man in our passage, even though it's 2,000 years earlier, we see the same thing in our day. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do I need to be baptized? Because I'll do that. If that's what it is, I'll do it. Do I need to do good deeds? Then I'll do it. Do I need to go to church every week? I'll do that. What do I have to do? Jesus, tell me what it is and I'll do it. Now, Jesus doesn't answer his question right away. Instead, what he does is he asks the man a question. He says to him in verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, he says, keep the commandments. Now, it doesn't say it here, but in Mark and in Luke, it says that Jesus, in addition to asking, why do you ask me about what is good, that he also asks the question or makes the statement or asks the question, why do you call me good? So the guy says, good teacher, and Jesus comes back and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not denying his goodness, but I think what he's doing is challenging this man to really stop and think about what he is saying. So he comes and he calls him a good teacher because he's interested in things of goodness. And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? There's nobody good but God alone. Not that I'm not good, not that I'm not God, but are you sure that's what you want to say right now? Do you really think that I am what it is that you're declaring that I am when you call me a good teacher? So he concludes Jesus is a good man. He comes asking about eternal life, and he demonstrates he's very much interested in goodness. Another term for this in the Bible is righteousness. This man is interested in righteousness. He's interested in goodness, but he demonstrates that he doesn't really understand what goodness is at all. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about goodness and righteousness, these interchangeable terms. And if you kind of leaf through the, the, if you turn through the pages of Scripture, you will discover there are essentially two ways, two paths to goodness. The Apostle Paul addresses both of these paths in Philippians chapter 3. Let me read the, the passage there. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there are two paths to righteousness. One of them, Paul describes here, is as a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. And the other one, Paul describes very similarly in the verse there, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Two paths to righteousness. One is faith in Jesus Christ. The other is obeying the Old Testament law and keeping the commandments. Now let me add something to that, lest you think, wait a minute, what's this guy talking about? Keeping the Old Testament commandments, the law, perfectly. That's the second path to righteousness. The first is through faith in Jesus Christ and his work. The second is by keeping the Old Testament law perfectly. And it's important we add that word perfectly there. If you want to go the route of attaining righteousness by keeping the commandments, then you must keep every commandment, every day of your life, for your entire life. How you doing with that? I'm not doing too well with that. Even before I began to think about these things, I wasn't doing too well with that. So this guy doesn't understand righteousness, goodness. And so Jesus is going to show him this truth. He's going to kind of paint this picture for him in his own life so that the man draws the conclusion himself. 
And so he says to the man, he takes him down this path, well, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Jesus kind of reminds me of what a lawyer might do in a court of law. I don't, I don't spend much time in a court of law, but I watch Law and Order quite frequently, and so I know some things. I was on a jury trial. This is how sad our nation is. I'm on a jury trial, and it's a murder trial. Three weeks I was on this thing, almost four weeks I'm on this trial. We get back into the room, and one of the guys begins talking, and I'm like, you're crazy. And I was just listening. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, no, no, I know what I'm talking about. I watch Law and Order all the time. And I was like, are you kidding? You know, whatever. So anyhow, I do too. I watch it. Or I've seen it. It's been on for 48 years, I think, or whatever. I've seen them all or whatever. But I think he's kind of doing what a lawyer might do, that he, he has a question to ask, but he sets it up with 10 other questions beforehand. It kind of builds to it and builds to it so that the only answer the guy can give will approve his case and, you know, the gavel will go down and everything will... Uh, go as planned here. So Jesus kind of sets it up. He's taking him on this path and he says, keep the commandments. So the guy responds, well, which ones do I need to keep? Which commandments should I keep? Now, there are some that teach this passage that come at it from the perspective that this fellow is a self-righteous fellow who is essentially asking Jesus, well, which ones? Because Jesus is going to answer and he's going to say, well, I've done all those. And then Jesus will say, well, then you're good to go. You're a good guy. Stop worrying or whatever. Some come at it from that particular approach. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that he's trying to set up the answer so that Jesus can commend him. I think this is a guy that is desperate, that has tried everything he can think of spiritually, and yet there's no peace in his heart still. And so he really comes to Jesus sincerely searching for something. And so when Jesus says, keep the commandments and you'll have eternal life, he responds and says, I have been keeping the commandments, but I still don't have that assurance. That's my take on what's going on here. Now, Jesus could have come back and says, well, that's because you're not keeping them perfectly. Do that and you'll be good to go. But instead, Jesus keeps him on this, you know, lawyer thing as I was describing. He keeps asking him more questions and, and so on. And so when the man says, which one, Jesus responds, verse 18, he says, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus here, he says, look, if you want to go down the path to righteousness through keeping the commandments, well, then we can do that. He says, don't murder, don't steal. Most people haven't murdered. Most people, many, some have, maybe a pencil here and there. Most people haven't stolen big things at the very least. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Most of us are liars, but perhaps this guy hasn't done that. Honor your father and mother. Very few of us have done that when we were kids. We've learned some things as we've gotten older. And Jesus gives him a listing of Old Testament laws. Now, these are all parts of the Ten Commandments. Jesus quotes commandment number 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10. You can go back, you can read them. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. He gives them a list of these commandments. And the guy comes back in verse 20 and says, I've, all of these I've kept. And yet, he says, what do I still lack? And again, I think he comes back in a place of brokenness where he's saying, all these things I've done. I've done all these things. It says in the book of Luke, he adds these words, from my youth. All my life I've been doing these things. And yet still... I don't have that assurance of eternal life. And so he asks, what do I lack? Now, it's not recorded for us here, but 
the Gospel of Mark tells us in this passage that when he comes back and says, I've done this from my youth, what do I lack? That it tells us in Mark chapter 10, 21, Jesus looks at him and loves him. That Jesus' heart is touched by this desperate fellow. And it, this is really the main reason why I think the guy is coming in sincerity. Because if he wasn't coming in sincerity, and he said, well, I've done all these things. If Jesus were like me, he would be like, oh, you, did you? And he'd be just as frustrated back with him, and he'd say, well, what about this, 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 this? And name them all, and the guy would be like, okay, yeah. And he would go away. But Jesus just looks at him, and he loves him. Doesn't come back in frustration, but he sees a guy who sincerely wants to be right with God, but doesn't know how to be right with God. And his heart is moved for the guy. As a matter of fact, the word that is used there where it says he loves him is the word agapeo. It's agape love. The love that God has for you and I is the love that he has for this young man that is in front of him. And so then he answers the question. Verse 21, the guy's in desperation. I've done all of that and still nothing. So he says, if you would be perfect, complete, have that assurance of eternal life. Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor. And then and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And so, yeah, the man has never murdered anyone, and he was not prone to lying, and he likely honored his mom and dad every day of his life, whatever it may be. But he knows that there was still something that was keeping him from being perfect, and Jesus knows what it is. And so he says to him, what's keeping you are your riches. And so he says to the guy, go and sell what you possess. Mark and Luke tell us that he says to the guy, go and sell all that you possess. There's a big difference. You know, go find your expendable income and give it to the poor and go give everything you own to the poor. There's a very, very big difference there. He's, Jesus is saying to this guy, there's something keeping you from fully following God and he tells him, that's your possessions. Now, we're sitting here and we're thinking, sell all of my possessions? That's radical. Interesting, that, Chris, that faith. Isn't there another church around nearby that doesn't go that far or whatever? He says, sell your possessions, that's radical. Don't you remember a few weeks back, though, where Jesus said to someone, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off? It's better to go into heaven without a right hand than to go to hell? says another place, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out better to go into eternity blind than to not go to heaven at all you know serious stuff that's radical and so here Jesus is saying sell all that you have and come following me come follow me because he knows that this is what's keeping him from a relationship with God and the peace in his heart that he's longing for I would suggest to you cutting your hand off and gouging at your eye is more radical than selling your possessions I would think so I'd rather get rid of my possessions and try and earn some new ones than have my hand cut off and my eye gouged out so Jesus said earlier to the guy, keep commandment 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10. And now he throws in another commandment. And he says, and go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor and come follow me. Now I know where commandment 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10 are found. I told you, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Where is the commandment in the Old Testament to sell all that you have and come follow God? Well, it's not there. There is no commandment in the Old Testament that tells us to do that. Matter of fact, Jesus never told anybody else in the New Testament, in the Gospels, to do that. In the book of Acts, there's no record of people being told to sell all that they have. Some might point to Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, 
who were struck down dead for misrepresenting who they are and what they were doing. But they weren't commanded to sell all that they were having. Matter of fact, Peter, in responding to them, says, look, when it was in your possession, you could have did anything you want with it. But you pretended something and you dishonored God. Read it. It's Acts chapter 5. So it's not commanded. Nowhere in the, gospel, or in the epistles, the letters, is it taught about. And so Jesus is giving a commandment here that no other scripture confirms or supports. Because the scripture that speaks into our life, it does speak into our life some commandments, but it doesn't speak this particular commandment. However, and I think this is real significant, some of the other commandments that it speaks into our lives may require we obey this particular commandment. And so let me explain what I mean. Though the Bible doesn't teach that we need to sell all of our possessions and give it to the poor, it does teach that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It does teach that. It does teach that we are not to have any other gods before him, the true God. Some versions say beside him. So if your possessions take the place of being more important to you than God himself, well, then you're not obeying those other two commands. If your possessions are more important to you than God himself, then you've set up an idol in your life. And you can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength, because a portion of your heart is given over to that, that idol, those possessions. If the idea of following Jesus wherever he might lead is prevented in your life by the impact it'll have on your bank account, well, then that's an indicator that your bank account is grabbing a hold of your heart. And it doesn't just have to be money. It could be a whole um, host of things. And so, yes, the Bible doesn't specifically command that we're to sell our possessions, but it does make clear that if those possessions are hindering you from worshiping and following the Lord, then selling those possessions might be an option. Now, I think there are two mistakes with this passage. One is to assume that Jesus is commanding all of us to sell all of our possessions if we want to be one of his followers. That's not what Jesus is saying here, as I tried to point out. I think the other mistake, though, is to assume that Jesus is not commanding any of us to sell all of our possessions, because he very well may be. Depending on the hold in your, of your life and of your heart that your possessions have, he may be telling you, you know what? You need to let go because these possessions are hindering you from following me. We know the scripture makes it very clear. Nothing inherently wrong with wealth and possessions. And every one of us in America, we are wealthy people. Even if we're like kind of down here compared to people up here, compared to the people of the rest of the world or many of the people of the rest of the world, we're very wealthy people according to those standards. And there's nothing inherently wrong with wealth and possessions. And the scripture makes it clear, possessions are inherently neutral. They're just an item. They're just a thing. So possessions in and of themselves are neutral unless your possessions possess you. And then that's where the problem happens. When your possessions possess you, you're running the risk of setting up a God in your life that will hinder your walk with Christ. And a solution when that is happening is a little generosity or perhaps even a lot of generosity to kind of break the reins, break the chains that are binding you is to be giving some of that away. And so that's what Jesus is telling this particular guy. He may be telling you that. Now, verse 22, look, the encounter continues. It comes to an end, really. It says, now, when the young man heard this, 
he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's probably not good to be changing the Bible. I think here we might be able to change it from where it says, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I think in this case, we could change that his great possessions had him. His possessions had a hold of him, and that's why he cannot take the step, or he feels like he cannot take the step to do what Jesus has just commanded him to do, because money, possessions, wealth has become his God. And he had become an idolater, and it's in that idolatry, that's the reason why he has no peace about his eternal destiny. It's revealed. Jesus reveals it to him. And it's the reason Jesus gave him that particular command. Jesus will likely give you a different command in your life, but he's going to command you something. Something that is hindering you from being all in in your relationship, he's going to put his finger on that if you ask him to. If you ask that question, Lord, why don't I have peace in my life? Why don't I have it? He might say it's because possessions have taken over your heart. But he might also say something like, it's because of that relationship that is damaging your relationship with me. You need to put it aside. He might say it's that partnership and those connections and that friendship that is hindering your relationship with me. You may need to put that aside. He might say it's those websites that you frequent. You might need to put those aside. He's going to put his finger on something. The specifics are going to be different for each one of us. They're going to be unique for each one of us. But this guy here, this is rough for him. There's a universal command that says you shall have no other gods before me. Your God might be a relationship. Your God might be money. Your God might be prestige and running after it or whatever. The, the specifics are going to be unique, but the command is universal. Now, the guy, he's, he goes away sad. We could look at that and we're like, can you believe this guy? What a clown. He comes here desperate. Jesus tells him the answer, and then he doesn't want to do it. And we could you know, judge this particular guy. But the reality is if you were in those shoes, those sandals there, and you went to the Lord, and he said to you, sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me and sleep on a rock, you know, with your head on a rock tonight and for the, however the duration is. Or if he came to you and he said, you know what, that, you know that relationship you have that you love, that is so dear and you love that person, break it off and come follow me. You're going to jump to it? Sure, Jesus. No, you're going to struggle with it. And so the guy, he does, as we can imagine, it's going to be very painful. When the Lord puts his finger on an area, it's a very painful thing. And I've come to discover, he likes to do it in my life. He puts his finger on areas. And what I've come to discover is it usually takes me a period of time where sort of the wrestling in my heart is no longer worth it. This thing is no longer worth the wrestling in my heart. And I finally say, all right, Lord, take it. And then the peace floods in and I'm where I need to be in my relationship with the, war, the Lord. It's no wonder this guy goes away sorrowful. Now we're going to move on to 23. But before we do, I want to point out two things. One thing is we don't know if this guy ever responded or not. So he went away sorrowful, but he could have gone home and began selling everything he had and started following the Lord. Maybe he did. So we don't necessarily know that. Uh, we don't know the full story. Second thing that I want to point out is notice Jesus' call to faith to this guy. It's a challenging one, isn't it? Sell it all and come follow me. Oftentimes today, as we're appealing to a person to come into a relationship with Christ, an individual at work that we're sharing with, somebody on some project that we're doing, as we're interacting with family members and we're trying to appeal to them to come to the faith, I think there's a temptation 
to try and sweeten the deal a little with all sorts of enticements and leave sort of the bad things, you know, the not so enticing things, kind of leave them out here, leave them with the fine print that nobody ever reads. And many times I think we become sort of like an unscrupulous salesperson who sort of does like a bait and switch technique and we lay out all the good stuff and hide all of the bad stuff and they can worry about that when they're out of my office and I don't have to see them. Jesus is straight up with this guy. And he says, look, this is eternal life. And this is what it's going to require. Take it or leave it. He puts it out there. Jesus says without saying it in these words, if you want to follow me, you must first count the cost to follow me. Will and I, we were at a conference this week. And while we were there, we heard the story of the baptism of Rebecca Roth. It was told to us. And let me, can you hit those lights there in the two corners? I want to show you this picture. You can't see it when it's bright out here. One more. There you go. And so this lady here in white, this is Rebecca Wolf. This is a, uh, Rolf. This is a fellow by the name, he's the pastor. His name is Alexander Whitaker, I believe is what it is. And this lady here, she came to, uh, to this fellow a year earlier. Now her name is Rebecca Rolf. You're probably thinking, who's Rebecca Rolf? If you watch Disney, you know her better as Pocahontas. So this is Pocahontas. She's an uh, American Indian living in, in uh, the 1600s there. She's 13 years old, and she comes to this pastor and says, I want to become a Christian. You, got, you can hit the lights again, guys. She s- comes to him and says, I want to be a Christian, and I want to be baptized and begin my relationship with God. And the pastor's response is, he says, no, you can't. I'm not going to baptize you. Now we hear that, and we're like, that's horrible. What a mean man, or whatever it may be. Now, he said more than that, as Mark is alluding. He said to her, he basically gave her a Bible, and their Bibles were like the size of this podium back then. He says, here, blam, take this home with you and read it, and come back in a year if you still want to be a Christian. Because what he wanted for her was to count the cost, to consider if she really did want to become a Christian or not, or if this is just some emotional experience. And so she goes home. She begins to read the Bible. I'm sure she asked somebody somewhere questions as well. She began to learn some things, and she came back in a year, and she says, I want to be a Christian, and I want to be baptized. And so Alexander Whitaker said, all right, absolutely. And she said, one more thing. I've noticed as I was reading through the Bible that oftentimes when a person came to faith, they changed their name as well. And I'd like to change my name. She says, I noticed Simon changed his name to Peter or had his name changed. Saul to Paul and other examples like that. I want to change my name. And so she changed her name to Rebecca. A little bit later, she married a guy by the name of John Rolfe. And that's why she's Rebecca Rolfe. But this is the story of her baptism here. Now, I'm not anti-altar call because I believe God can do a work in a person in that. But I, what I am anti, and I want to make sure that I don't do, is make the call to faith so easy and do some sort of bait-and-switch situation where a person comes up and they have no idea what it even means to be a Christian, but I got a convert that I can notch on my belt or something like that. Don't leave out the vital details. Jesus doesn't do so. We are called, everyone that comes to Christ is called to count the cost and then go follow after him. And so the man goes away sorrowful. Now, as he's going away, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? 
And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that a rich person can't enter the kingdom of heaven, but it says here how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not impossible for a person with riches here on the earth to enter heaven, but it sure does make it more of a challenge. And I think the reason why riches make it a challenge for a person to enter into the kingdom of heaven or to be saved is because of the deceptive nature of riches. I appreciate having riches. I appreciate the convenience that they can bring. But oftentimes when we have wealth, we grow much more interested in the temporal things of this earth than the things of eternity. Because we have a home that's comfortable and warm. We have a vehicle that can get us around. We take our family on a vacation once a year or whatever it may be. And pretty soon what begins to happen is, this isn't so bad. I like here on planet Earth. I hope I live for 100, whatever it may be. And so the deceptive nature of riches is it can have the tendency to cause us to be more interested in the temporal than the eternal. I think it also what riches has done, and I've noticed this in my life as I've gotten older and I have a little more expendable income from when I was in college or something like that, is it causes us to become much more independent people. And so I remember when I was in high school, or excuse me, in college, and someone might invite me over, would you like to come over for a meal or whatever? And I'm like, yes, I haven't had a good meal in forever. Where should I come? All right, and then you come five hours early so you get a lunch and a dinner out of it or something like that. You know, now that I've become earl- older, I'm not as desperate for a good meal. My wife makes one every, every night. And so, you know, I'm not as inclined to be as dependent on other people. What wealth can have the tendency of doing is cause us to be more independent people. We don't need anyone's help. If I got a problem, we just take money out of the bank to cover the problem. And pretty soon we begin thinking we don't need God's help as well. I remember when uh, Sandy came through. And thought I was ready. I had, uh, I think I told you this, I had a case of water downstairs that was partially open. So there was probably like 15 bottles of water. I'll be fine. 15 bottles of water. Well, all the trees came down, all the power lines in my neighborhood came down. Our well no longer worked. And now these 15 bottles of water are all that I had for however long that was going to take. And I didn't know if it hit this entire community all around here and you know I'd be miles away from drink and I began to think if I have to go stand in a line for water how would I deal with that how would I respond to that and there was an aspect of me that said if I have to do that that's going to be a huge swallowing of my pride and I don't think that's going to be an easy thing for me to do and so we begin when we have wealth I don't need anybody I don't need any help and we begin to even think I don't even need God's help when the reality is we do. And that's why for a rich person, if I don't think I need God's help, I'm never going to ask him for, to forgive me of my sins through the work of his son on the cross. So Jesus here, he makes his point in verse 24 by saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He takes the largest known common animal to these people of that day, he takes the camel. I don't know if you've ever been alongside of a camel, but they're huge, nine, ten feet high in the air and big old smelly animals or whatever. And he takes this big animal, the camel, and he compares it with the smallest possible thing. Another place he compares something to a mustard seed. Here he compares it to the eye of a needle. This big camel trying to fit through 
this eye of the needle. Now, there are some that will look at this passage and teach that what Jesus is speaking of is not the back of a needle, that little hole in a needle where you run the thread through, but he's speaking of a city gate, and you would have city gates that would open and people could come in and out all day, but then you would close those gates at night so people could go to sleep and they'd be protected and someone's going to have to climb some big wall. They're not going to do so. Now, let's say you're just out late one night and the city gates are already closed. Well, they're not going to open them up for you. But what they had is in the gate, I think we have a picture here. They had these little small doors. Can you see this little door? And that would close as well. And that's what they would open and close if somebody came after the city gates themselves were closed. And there are people that are suggesting this is what Jesus is referring to when he says the eye of the needle, which is what it was called, that he's referring to this. I think there's a problem, however, with that thinking. If, if that is the conclusion that we come, because what that would lead us to is concluding that if you work hard enough and you squeeze and you push and you teach your camel to suck in its gut or whatever it may be, then you can get that camel through that small opening. The problem with that thinking is it doesn't translate over to our salvation. Our salvation has nothing to do with us working hard and squeezing in our gut and all these other things. The other thing is, look at verse 25. It says that the disciples are greatly astonished by this statement. Not a camel trying to get through a door, but a camel trying to get through a hole in a needle. And it says in verse 25, they ask, who then can be saved? So if in their mind they're thinking that Jesus is talking about a small opening in a big gate and trying to get a camel through that there, and if he can squeeze and shove and we can put some butter on the side and we can get him through, their response would have been not who can be saved, but boy, if that's what it takes, very few are going to be saved because most people aren't going to go through that effort. But they would not say who then can be saved. And if Jesus were thinking about the smaller opening and a much larger gate, then he would not have used in verse 26 the word impossible because you could get a camel through that opening if you tried hard enough. But Jesus uses the word impossible. What Jesus is talking about is the tiniest of openings and the largest of animals. And he's creating an impossible situation to point out a most important truth, which is this is that with man, salvation is impossible, but with God, it is possible. So riches may have a doling effect on your senses, and they may skew your focus from the heavenly to the the earthly here, but that doesn't mean it's impossible for one with riches to be saved, because God is in the business of doing the miraculous. And so he says, with God, all things are possible. Now, there's a little bit more. Look at verse 27. Peter replies, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So we see that the rich young ruler goes away sad because he's unwilling to part with his possessions. Peter points out, Lord, we didn't go away sad. You called us when we were on the edge of that sea, and we left our nets, we left our business, we left our homes, and we came to follow you. And then he asks the question in verse 27, what then will we have? Now, what I wonder here, I don't know this for sure, but what I wonder here is if Peter is finally figuring out that Jesus' kingdom is not of this earth. Previously, he seemed to be thinking that Jesus' kingdom was of this earth. And so, yeah, I'll leave my nets. 
I'll leave my business, I'll leave my family, but there's a throne for me a couple of years ahead in Jerusalem. Most of us would make that deal. A couple of hard years to rule and to reign, you know, for the rest of the time. That seems like a reasonable deal to make. And Peter had been thinking that way. And what I'm wondering is if Peter is now coming to this conclusion, wait a minute, Jesus has said repeatedly that his kingdom is not of this world. And so, Lord, I left all of those things. What will I inherit? What will we get? That's what I'm wondering if it is going on here. And so he asked the question. Now, Jesus kindly points out to Peter what heavenly rewards he will receive. Jesus could have said to Peter, look, buddy, you got a lot of nerve. You're lucky to get in. And now you want all these other things. You know, Peter, he messed up a few times here. That's become very clear. But instead, very mercifully, Jesus begins to tell him. And he says to him, look, in the coming kingdom, I think this is a reference to the millennial kingdom. He says, in the coming kingdom, each one of you, these apostles in front of them, you're going to rule and reign with me. Notice he even says in 28, even over the 12 tribes of Israel. In the coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom, you're going to rule and you're going to reign. That'll be your inheritance. He goes on in verse 29. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. No sacrifice for Christ will go unrewarded. Unrewarded. Whatever has been given up on this for, for the purpose of following Christ here on the earth so that you might be able to serve Christ, Jesus says it will be rewarded a hundred times over. Now, this doesn't mean if you throw a hundred bucks in the offering that there's 10,000 bucks put in an account when you get to heaven or something like that. The reward might be a different means of compensation altogether. The point is this, you will not be disappointed. For anything that you might have to sacrifice here on the earth, you will not be disappointed. And I think the takeaway for us is this, that nothing that we might retain here on the earth, acquire here on the earth, possess here on the earth, is worth trading your soul for. Nothing is worth trading your soul for. Not great riches, not some great relationship, not fame and prestige, not a life of safety, ease, and comfort. Nothing is worth trading away your soul for. The Scriptures tells all of us this commandment, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and, as it says in Exodus, that we are to have no other gods beside him. Now, we're before him. And sometimes that is interpreted in the sense of he's got to be your number one God, and then you could have all these other gods here. It means in his presence. Don't bring it before me. Don't bring it beside me. Don't bring it here. He's the only one God that we are to worship and to serve. And sometimes our riches, our money, our relationships, pursuing after fame or a life of ease and comfort, sometimes that can hinder our loving the Lord our God with all of our heart. And the word I think for us today is simply this, don't let it happen in your life. Amen? Would you agree? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, that's a challenge again. You keep challenging us, Lord, every time we look into your word, and, and we're grateful. Lord, you are not content to leave us the place you found us, but you want to grow us and conform us to your image. And so, Father, I pray in, um, in your mercy, Lord, that you would be kind to reveal to us those areas that are hindering us 
from fully following after you. And Lord, as you put your finger on those areas, that you would be gracious and merciful to enable us, giving us the strength and the courage to put those things aside. And Lord, really just an awareness of faith, I, I guess, is the term. That the things that you have for us and the things that you're calling us to are for our good. And that, Father, we would just say, all right, Lord, have it, take it. Lord, show us what those areas are. Lord, I don't want any of us, and I certainly don't want to leave here unchanged. But rather, we want you to have done a good work and a life-changing, a heart-changing work. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, we pray that you would continue to teach us, even as we go from here, that you would cause these things to just resonate in our hearts and in our minds. And we believe that's a prayer according to your will. So, Lord, hear our prayer, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.